Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 148 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the previous week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. Ready think, for FOMC today? Yeah, yeah, big Fed meeting today. Um, so widely anticipated that they're going to raise interest rates by a half a percent Correct. right now. Um, and I think it would be a surprise in either direction if they raised by 0.75% or if they just raised by 0.25%. So I think, you know, I was looking at Nick, yes, looking with Nick yesterday at the, the Fed Watch tool that we follow. And I think it's like 99.37% of people who are surveyed are anticipating a uh, half a point uh, raise. So there you go. So we'll see what happens. Um, you know, I think that's going to influence uh, trading at least through the end of this week and then possibly through the rest of the quarter, too. So, um, And as a reminder to our listeners and viewers, they meet every six weeks. Yes. Unless there's a, a, a meeting that they call in between, which could happen. Which they can, but it doesn't happen. But it doesn't very happen very often. often. So normally every six weeks. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So before we begin, as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month of the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on uh, April 27th. So this is going to be uh, numbers through the end of April. So S&P 500 index was down 8.8% for the month and down 13.31% for the year. The Dow down 4.91% for the month and down 9.5% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index down 13.26% for the month and down 17.73% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Index down almost 10% for the month and down 16.86% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF, X United States, down 6.5% for April and down 12.13% for the year. Three-month T-bill ended the year at 0.85%. The two-year, or excuse me, the month at 0.85%. The two-year Treasury yield sitting at 2.7% and the 10-year Treasury yield at 2.89%. Um, so big news headlines, current events from the week, Matt. Um, I don't think it's any secret what's probably going to be on people's minds is that was a, that was a pretty bad April. <laughs> Worst single month for the stock market going back to the fall of 08 during the great financial crisis. And what will be the third worst start for the S&P year to date through the end of April, third worst ever. Yeah. So uh, while you say that, I'll just go ahead and share my my first one from the the news and research from the week. It, it was a tweet by Grant Hawkridge on April 26th. And Jenna will put this up on the YouTube channel for those that are watching. Um, or you can check it out at our show notes uh, at Jessup Wealth on Twitter or Jessup Wealth Management on Facebook and LinkedIn. So he tweeted a chart um, and he said, uh, this is the worst start to the year for the S&P 500 index since 1950. And the chart has data going back to 1990. Um, so it's all, you know, the starts through the end of April 
every year since 1990. And you can clearly see that, um, you know, this has been the worst start that we've had in a, in a long time. Yeah. And, you know, I have a couple of points I'm going to make here later um, in the show that are not good. But the point I want to make with this chart is, as I discuss these topics, how much of it's already priced into the market? Mm -hmm. That's the question. Right. Okay. So what I want our viewers and listeners to understand is the market, as you always tell them, is forward looking. And it's forward looking, tongue in cheek, six to nine months down the road. And you have to ask yourself, as you analyze this market right now, how much of that is priced in? And I'll be bringing up some things that could potentially get worse, but they also could get a lot better. Mm -hmm. And so we are in kind of one of those pivotal points, I think, for the market over the next, especially quarter. Yeah, that makes good, sense. That's a good point because you know everyone's obviously aware that there's risk to the downside. But you know if you do, or if you are freaked out and you're like, listen, I just need to get out of the market. There's risk to the upside as well. This there, thing could snap back very quickly, like it did. Not saying it's going to, like it did in March of 2020. You just have to understand that that is a risk that you're willing to take if you're going to go to 100% cash right now. Exactly. And you know what I will say is that sentiment levels at where they're at today. We've talked about this many times in the podcast, especially in the last six or seven weeks is so extreme in a negative bearish standpoint that that could happen. You could have a significant move higher. You got the opposite of April. However, with some of this data, we could hypothetically have another month like April sometime in the near future. It could work both ways. That's why I think that this is a time where people truly have to have a good long-term vision. This is not a market that can be timed. This is not a market that you want to try to trade on a week-to-week -week basis. This is a market that you invest for your risk tolerance. You have a long-term view. This is not a market, in my opinion, that could be timed. I'll say it one more time. Yeah, yeah. So um, obviously the other the other big news other than the Fed meeting this week, which we already kind of discussed, is, you know, there's more news and headlines out there about China's zero COVID policy. So can you just take a couple minutes and, you know, tell people what's going on there and what the potential impacts of that are? Yeah, I will, Mark. And, and listeners and viewers, what's happening right now is China is taking, as Mark said, a zero COVID policy. So in essence, if there's any outbreaks, they are enhancing and doing lockdowns in various parts of the country. The most notable one that is getting some headlines, not enough in my opinion, is the shutdown of their second largest city, Shanghai, during the month of April. It has now been shut down for four and a half weeks. And that is significant. You virtually have no ships going in and out of the largest port in the entire world. In addition, there is data coming out that there's the potential for Beijing to be shut down as well, either as we speak or sometime during the month of May. And that's the largest city in China. With that being said, if with our global supply chain on the mend, it's been healing. If you have any sort of extended shutdowns that spread beyond Shanghai, 
the lagging negative effects for the global supply chain later in the year could be extreme. And I don't want to be a fear monger. However, it is a valid risk that I think people need to be aware of. And I have a research piece that's going to discuss this here in a little bit. But I want to throw it out there that if things continue for an extended period of time in China due to these lockdowns, we will go through another reiteration of supply chain issues in the second half of the year. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, we spoke with our, you know, with um, the chief investment officer of, of Commonwealth uh, earlier this week. Brad and, McMillan, we've had and, him on the podcast before. Yeah, and, you know, he brought up a good point is that, you know, there there have been workarounds put in place so that, you know, the impact of supply chain issues shouldn't be as bad as they were in 2020. So I'm just wondering how much of that will mitigate the blow for supply issues in the U.S. this time around, um, whether that means companies are, are diversifying their supply chains or, you know, the ports on the east and the west coast have come up with workarounds for if we do get port congestion again. Yep. So we don't have ships at sea for weeks and weeks on hand. Um, so I mean, I, the other big factor is we're not going to have shutdowns here in the U.S. as of right now. Mm -hmm. So last time when we had those shutdowns, it was not only internationally, but it was domestically. Right. You have to ask the question, now that we're not having quote-unquote shutdowns here in the U.S., when it's happening, say, over in China, that's uncharted territory for the data as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So I would just, I would be shocked if there wasn't anything done between the, the first set of issues we had and now. Mm -hmm. um, again, probably not going to be perfect, but I would imagine that there are things in place so that it's not as bad as it was two years ago. Correct. Or a year ago. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Um, so my second point that I had, uh, was a blog post from Jeff Hirsch on April 26th. And that was titled welcome to the weak spot of the four year cycle. So with all this other stuff going on, um, the market entered the weak spot of the four-year election cycle this month with an array of headwinds from the Fed, inflation, Ukraine war, and now most concerning, the China, uh, China's unprecedented COVID lockdowns and testing. This situation has the potential to generate the greatest impact on the glo global economy as it could severely restrict the flow of essential raw materials and goods around the world. Q2 to Q3 of the second year of the presidency are the weakest two quarters of the four-year cycle, averaging losses of 1.2% uh, for the Dow, 1.5% for the S&P, and negative 5% for the NASDAQ. So he also says that the good news is, is that the weak spot immediately precedes the sweet spot of the four-year cycle which runs from Q4 of the midterm year through Q2 of the pre-election year, averaging gains of 19.3% for the Dow, 20% for the S&P 500, and 29.3% for the NASDAQ. So, wow. Yeah. So on top of this, you know, we are going into a seasonally weak period during the four-year presidential cycle on top of everything else that's going on. Um, but... You know, the the bright side or, you know, things that you can look forward to is that these 
week two quarters historically precede very strong periods of returns for the major market indexes. Going along with what you said, if I have to paraphrase what I think the remaining period of the year with the highest percentage of uncertainty and risk, in my personal opinion, I'd say it's between now and September. With, with all these cross currents, we're looking at how the Fed's going to orchestrate a soft landing for inflation, these supply chain issues between now and September is that zone of uncertainty and higher risk, in my opinion. Yeah. Where you're going to see a lot more. I'm expecting a lot more volatility mm -hmm. up and down. Right. Okay. And looking back at, you know, at history, it provides us with a, a guide of, of what should happen during certain periods of the year or what should happen during, you know, uh, midterm cycles or presidential cycles. Absolutely. So not saying it has to play out like that. I just think it gives us a lot of information if it doesn't play out like that. It gives you raw data points that at least could be part of the, you know, analysis that you have. Right. Right. Uh, last piece I have is something that might fire you up a little bit here. So oh, here we go. Uh, it was an article in the Wall Street Journal titled Fidelity to allow retirement savers to put Bitcoin in their 401k accounts. Employees won't be able to start adding cryptocurrencies to their nest eggs right away. But later this year, the 23,000 companies that use Fidelity to administer their retirement plans will have the option to put Bitcoin on the menu. Under the plan, Fidelity will let savers allocate as much as 20% of their nest egg to Bitcoin through the, or excuse me, uh, though that threshold could be lowered by plan sponsors, so by individual companies who use the Fidelity platform. Uh, it would be limited to Bitcoin initially, but people could expect other digital assets to be made available in the future. What's my your initial, initial take? My initial response is I put myself in the shoes of these trustees of these plants. And ERISA has rules for these trustees to have, you know, diversified investment options, and there's a list of things. Part of those things, and I will paraphrase in my own words, is you got to protect participants from themselves. And there have been lawsuits in the past when companies have provided too many options, some of those very aggressive options, where people have put it in technology funds in 2007 and lost 80% of their account a year and a half later and sued because, well, there were too many options, I picked the one that had the best returns and I lost 80%. So with that being said, as a trustee of a plan, that's risky right now especially when, in essence, our government still really doesn't have a true formal legal stance from Congress on this. If they did, in my opinion, that would be different for these trustees. And that could happen in a month. It could happen later this year. But I think until you truly have more of a legal stance by Congress on this, I think it's difficult to allow retirement money in a 401k for this. Yeah. This, this is the money that you utilize in outside of your retirement accounts. This is more of your, your, your speculation account. You know, it's either a hero or a zero type of thing. Mm -hmm. My two cents. Yeah, I agree. So just to play devil's advocate, isn't it a, a decent thing to be able to add more asset classes that are readily available for people to diversify? So they're not only limited to stocks, bonds, cash, but they have 
crypto. They have some some 401ks even have commodity funds. Correct. But, you know, I, I could make an argument that if they're going to go down this road, then they should make funds available for for real estate, One, for uh, rare wine, rare cars, wine, cars, art. I think that if they're going to go down this road, then there should be offerings available for other alternative asset classes. And my fear is it's just because it's so popular right now, they're rushing to get this in where I think they should take the stance and be like, listen, maybe we should provide other alternative assets in these plans as well. Yeah, the biggest problem with a lot of these asset classes that we're discussing, of course, is the liquidity, liquidity. aspects. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that with the rules of uncredited investors, it's really hard to do a lot of these asset classes due to the liquidity. You can't just go in and, and fire sale that rare car or whatever it might right. be. I just going back to it for me, it has to do with I think the government needs to have a formal legal stance on this and they just need to do it. And so that that's that's where that's where my head comes from. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see when this goes into into place here. And it's going to be interesting to see the flows, to see how many people do are it. going to be yeah. buying this. Stuff. I mean, I could tell you right now, any any of the trustees uh, for plans that that we administer call me up. I'm going to tell them the same exact thing I just said. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, good point. Yep. Turn it over to you. Okay, uh, so the first thing I have for our viewers and listeners, Mark, is an article from Bloomberg on April 25th. It has to do with the global supply chain uh, crisis flares up again where it all began. And again, this goes back to what we were talking about with China, as I said I would reference later in the podcast. So according to this article, in April, there was a one-week shutdown in Shenzhen, which is a Chinese technology hub, and the quote was, many sellers are suffering a one-month delivery delay. It takes, on average, 111 days for goods to reach a warehouse in the U.S. from the moment they're ready to leave an Asian factory. That's close to the record of 113 days mark set in January and more than double the trip pre-COVID in 2019. And they referenced uh, a San Francisco-based Flexport, a freight forwarder for that data. A westbound journey to Europe takes even longer, a near record 118 days. These longer queues of vessels seen off of China's coast are not helping. The long line of cargo carriers has jumped in Shanghai. And in, as I said earlier, it's home to the world's largest container port because that city had a uh, lockdown that lasted so far four weeks. Now, if you look at the number of ships off that port, including a close port, Ningbo, it stands at 230 ships as of last Wednesday that are waiting to port. That's a 35% increase from a year ago. I got one more interesting quote I want to share with our listeners. I saw this in a different article, and I will quote who it's from. Shipping is being very materially disrupted. In 2021, we calculated about six weeks were needed to recover, get back to normal flows for every week of shutdown. So I'll say that again. Every one week of a shutdown, they calculated takes six weeks for that area to recover and get back to normal. So if you take Shanghai as an example, four weeks, that's two quarters for that area, though, to get back to normal supply chains. Okay. Now, this is a quote that is from Michael Zimmerman. He's the leader of analytic practice for America's consulting firm called um, Kearney. 
And so he told this to Freight Waves, which is a news organization. So what's my message to listeners? Beyond what you and I discussed earlier, which I think is very valuable information in my opinion, I think the data out of China should be watched closely, especially if larger cities like Beijing shut down. And if it gets worse, it could provide a perfect storm later in the year. But we don't know yet. And this is why I go back to what I said a couple of minutes ago, that the peak point of uncertainty is between now and September in regards to this topic. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And if you do, you know, if you, you know, let's go two quarters out just based on that calculation that you just talked about, then we're, you know, we're talking about, you know, holiday time, holiday time. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So this is another year where you're going to hear me preach probably beginning in August. Start doing your Christmas shopping. <laughs> And, you know, and looking back at last year, Amazon, I think, handled it pretty well. I don't think that they had many uh, shortages of stuff, Mm -mm. but not every retailer had that same Amazon, right? Yeah, had had invested in their logistics like they did. I have have a forecast for the hottest Christmas item this year already. Mark the day, Jenna. May 4th. Matt's making the prediction. The hottest Christmas item? Everyone's going to want. Is it new? Brand new product. Is it from Apple? Yes. Um. Oh, yeah. The green phone? Nope. Nope. Jenna said the green phone. Nope. I'll give you one more try. New product. I don't know. They are supposedly releasing an augmented reality glasses ah. this fall, and it's and I think it's going to be the item to have under the Christmas tree. Is that the one that I was? Because I was reading about something else that maybe it is Apple developing like glasses to the point where like you like you don't even have to have like, your computer out. Was that the? Yes, and I don't want to. It's all rumors as to kind of how deep it goes. Hmm. But from what I'm understanding is you could have these on right now mm-hmm. and you could have various information and I would have no idea what you're saying. Right. Well, that'd be kind of wild. That makes me think to like a couple of years ago, wasn't like Google Glasses supposed to be like the hot thing and they just kind of flopped? Yeah. And I think that we got to remember my opinion and I like Google as a company there and we, you know, it's a good, it's a good company. <laughs> So with, with that being said, I think it's the ecosystem that Apple has in the connectivity between, say, your watch, your phone, your iPad. I just think it's going to be very um, intuitive, easier to use, and integrates with all your other products, which I think is a huge difference and probably why it took them three or four years to come out with their own version. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Apple just does like such a good job of keeping you in their ecosystem. Oh, it's yeah. like, and if they you keep want, building little blocks. If on you want to make a change, it's so hard to go Sticky. outside of Apple. Sticky. Everything's connected. Everything works with each other. So it's hard. Yeah. Sticky. Yeah. yeah. And again, I'll say this for my compliance side of my mind. This is neither a recommendation for or against Google or Apple. No. I'm just throwing out that I think that it's going to be a hot product. Then the question is, are they going to have the supply of it? Yeah. It's a funny thing that I, I saw yesterday that I called you over because there was a, a research piece of software that we use was 
after Apple earnings, giving us all the data that we needed. And they uh, had a, uh, a misquote in there when they were talking about the special dividend that Apple was offering. And on their system, it said Apple as of shareholders as of Apple stock as of May 9th, we're going to receive a $23 special dividend per share <laughs> that you owned. And I brought you over and I was like, does this look right? And you're like, there's absolutely no way the stock would be up 30% right now. <laughs> it's true in my opinion. So, and you know, we went back and dug through it and they had just misquoted it and it was 23 cents per share, which is still great. Oh, absolutely. But I just thought it was funny because I was like, Wait, how does this even make any sense? And it didn't, obviously. That would have been nice, though. The thing is crazy, going back in time, it's not uncommon for you know companies, especially the cash cows in the tech arena, have given some pretty fat special dividends in the past. Yeah, and I know like Costco's done it in the past yeah. a couple of times. Microsoft. So, yeah, and that's what, you know, investors during periods of high inflation want a return on their cash. Yeah, if the money's just sitting on the balance sheet not doing anything, give it back to them. So what are they going to do? Raise dividends, do special dividends, Stock announce buybacks. more buybacks. So, yeah. Retire debt, buy other companies, invest mm -hmm. in productivity. Yep. All those things make me salivate as a shareholder. <laughs> All right, I got two more. Ready? <laughs> Damage to the markets recently has been extreme. There's a Twitter post by Jason, the founder of Sundial Capital Research. Jenna's going to post this image of this chart on our YouTube channel, Mark, and it'll also be in our show notes. It shows the NASDAQ composite, and here's what I want to throw out there. The internal damage that you don't see on these index returns you quoted earlier. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. More than 45% of the stocks that are in the NASDAQ composite are down more than 50% 5-0. More than 22% are down more than 75% from their highs. More than 5% are actually down more than 90. This only compares to October 2000 to 02 and November 08 to April of 09. To be specific, the market bottomed in March of 09. Mm -hmm. Now, what I want to say here is the same exact thing I said earlier. It could be debated how much of this negativity is already priced in. That is why I want to be very clear once more to our viewers and listeners. In my opinion, it could get a lot worse or it could get a lot better. And this is a time to know that volatility will remain. That's my message. Mm -hmm. yep. Now, my last thing for today, why is it so tough out there? There is, um, and there was this... Um, um, post by a Bloomberg TV journalist on April 21st, David Ingalls, and he posted a chart going back all the way to the early 90s. And it shows returns of the MSCI all country stock index and the Bloomberg global bond index. And this is the first time in 30 years, Mark, that both stocks and bonds are down this much simultaneously to start the four first four months of the year. So in essence, the message is, at least in the investment markets, there really hasn't been many places to hide. Traditionally speaking, bonds tend to buoy negative stock returns. When you look back in history, it's a very generalized statement. Mm -hmm. But when you have both asset classes almost 100% correlated year to date, 
that's a very, very rare thing. I'm not going to yeah, call it a well, unicorn, but it's very rare. Yeah, well, it's hard to go back in history and find another period where stocks are under pressure and fixed income is under pressure because the Fed is raising rates to combat inflation and they're also reducing their balance sheet. It's like, all right, let's go back and find the last time that happened. And it's not very many times. Um, so I think, again, this kind of dispels the theme that, you know, bonds are quote unquote safer than stocks. There's some bond indices that are down more than some of the main market indices right now. It's a great point. Um, so again, will things probably get back to normal? Yeah, they will. Where they don't have as much of a correlation right. moving at the but same my time. Fear, so here's my fear out of this is that people are going to anchor to this moment and they're going to be like, well, I don't want to invest in bonds anymore because they don't provide a safe haven. There you go. And then okay. the next downturn we have, Good point. they will provide a safe haven. Good point. But people are going to up their risk level or, you know, to, to more stock exposure or just hold more cash. And again, don't want to use the G word, but very high probability that, you know, sell offs in the future bonds will do their job and provide a cushion or a buffer to the downside when stocks aren't doing well but especially as monetary policy normalizes right and but you know right now we're in you know a market environment where the, the 60 40 portfolio is is not doing its job yeah we've right. talked about that in previous podcast mm -hmm. yeah so uh before i invite uh taylor on the show the market opened about six minutes ago so i'll let you get back to your thing uh, before we have taylor on anything else you want to end with mark no, I don't think so. I just think it'll be interesting to see what the, the Fed decides this afternoon. And I'm sure we'll see a move one way or another just with the heightened volatility that we're in right now. And, um, you know, things will get better. Things will get better. Yes. It's going to take time. But, you know, plot a, 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 a chart of the S&P 500 over the past 75 years. Left to right. Left to right. And we've gone through times like this before. I know it hasn't happened in a little bit of a and it hasn't happened Wild. this exact way. Right. So, and it never does. Nope. Right. Um, so we'll get through it. It's just going to take some time. Right. Love the words of wisdom. I absolutely yeah. agree. All right. We'll be back with you next week and I'm going to have Taylor come fill in. Perfect. So um, for our newer listeners, uh, Taylor Ledbetter, um, it does all of our financial planning uh, work behind the scenes at our practice. Um, Taylor is also studying for her um, CFP, her uh, Certified uh, Financial Planning Certification. She has an exam this upcoming summer. And so, uh, Taylor, I know you are a fan favorite of people in our podcast. So thank you for being a part of it again this week. Yeah, I'm happy to be back on. So I will turn it over to you. And what do you have prepared for our viewers and listeners this week? Yeah, so today I'm going to be talking about the 72T distributions again, but doing the part two. Excellent. Because mm -hmm. okay. I talked about this last time, but it was more of an educational um, part where I explained what those were. So today I'm going to be talking about some updates to those laws this year. Okay. And then also um, some different ways to maximize those distributions. All right, let's do it. So first, I just want to briefly recap about what I talked about last time because um, okay. it was a little bit ago. Yes. <laughs> so um, to recap, a 72T distribution is when you take substantially equal periodic payments from a tax-deferred retirement account before age 59 and a half, 
and this avoids the 10% penalty. You must continue to take payments for either five years or until you reach age 59 and a half, whichever is longer. Correct. There's three different methods for these distributions. The first one is the RMD method. It's calculated the same way as an RMD would be, um, and it's the most simple method. Mm -hmm. The second one is the amortization method. Payments are determined by amortizing the individual's account balance over a number of years and then using an appropriate interest rate. And then the last one is the annuitization method calculated by dividing the account balance over an annuity factor, which is provided by the IRS. So some updates for this year, the IRS released notice 2022-6. This notice updates the reasonable interest rate that can be used when calculating these distributions only under the amortization and annuitization methods. So this update does not apply to um, the RMD okay. method. Okay. So as I mentioned, previously taxpayers were limited to using an interest rate no larger than 120% of the applicable federal midterm rate. Um, as a reminder, these rates can be found on the IRS website, and it's dependent on your age and just your time frame for taking the distribution. But this new update allows taxpayers to use 5% to calculate these distributions. To kind of compare that, in January, the rate was 1.57%, and in February, it was 1.69%. So a drastic uh, flexibility going forward. Mm -hmm. It raised by about 3.5%. Huge. Mm -hmm. And this just allows taxpayers to take higher distributions because, I mean, those interest rates were pretty low. Mm -hmm. So your cash flow needs might not have been met. Got it. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it comes to 70T2 planning, I think the goal is to generate the largest possible distribution from the smallest possible balance. Um, the most effective way to do this is by utilizing the amortization med method with the single life expectancy table and the new interest rate of 5%. And that would get you the biggest amount per year. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. And I actually have um, a chart that kind of compares those three methods okay. and just their distributions. And the RMD method was substantially lower. So if, if you don't need, you know, a high distribution amount, I would recommend doing the RMD. What's good about this is it's expanding, quote unquote, the tools in the toolbox for these people that want to be taking money out of their retirement accounts before that magic age of 59 and a half. And I think this is very welcome legislation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that these new updates are definitely going to be advantageous um, and just help people more than they were before. I guess I use term legislation. I guess I should say IRS, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, mandates or policy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, one potential problem with this higher rate is that it could produce a payment that is maybe too high for an individual. Okay. You know, just having extra cash flow that they don't need. Because once you've established the 72 payment schedule. You have to keep um, it. Yeah, you're locked in and you can't really modify that. Um, I mean, in this case, you could split the account balances into multiple accounts prior to establishing that 72 T payment Interesting schedule. idea. Mm -hmm, because 
if you don't need um, that much money, you could just split those accounts and take from the smaller account balance and establish the schedule that way. That's a good idea. Mm -hmm. Leaves you one account that's just enough to produce the desired payment. And the other one just continues to grow without withdrawals. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this could be transferring money from one IRA to another. There, there's many different things that you could do. Yeah. I mean, you could have multiple IRAs, so that's, a, that's definitely a good idea. Mm -hmm. um, also, if you're trying to minimize your existing 72T payment, I know I mentioned this last time, but you can make a one-time switch to the RMD method if you're using the other two or one of the other During two. the period, yes. You get to mm -hmm. choose uh, one time if you wanted to amend it. Mm -hmm. um, something else that you could do is you can also use the new life expectancy tables that the IRS came out with this year. You can start using them this year, but starting in 2023, it is a requirement. Um, those numbers won't be huge, but I think it would help a little bit because these new tables reflect larger life expectancies. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so overall, I, I think this new update is very advantageous. Um, and I think it's really going to help people that want to minimize those payments. It's great. And again, you know, there have been a lot of people out there, Taylor, that have been good savers that want to retire before that 59 and a half age. Mm -hmm. Um, or maybe people, uh, you know, received a, um, an inheritance early and they're like, listen, I'm going to retire at 55, but I got to figure out where I'm going to get this money from. This is definitely a valid avenue that they could do more further research on. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact, um, that splitting up the account balances is something that people could really realistically use. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's good advice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about the topic? Um, nope. That was all. All right. Well, listeners, thanks for joining us for episode 148 of the Independent Advisors podcast. We'll be back next week with our next episode, and we hope everyone has a good rest of their week and a good weekend. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. 
Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.